welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. It sounds too weird if I'm like, hee hee, welcome to the Michigan Murders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm not too giggly. Hello and welcome to the Carnival of Death. I'm your host. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. No, I think you're, yeah, you're first this week. I'm first this week? Okay. Well, today I have an episode of Forensic Files, which was season eight, episode 34, called Web of Seduction, where on November 8, 1999, Chuck Miller received a phone call from his sister-in-law that his brother Bruce was missing. Chuck went to Bruce's junkyard to look for him, and when he got there, he found Bruce on the floor by his desk with a telephone receiver near his head and a gunshot wound to the chest. The scene was clean. Too clean. Hmm. This is a junkyard we're talking about. Yeah. Where it's probably never been cleaned since opened. There's grease, oil. There should be something. No footprints, no fingerprints, no hair other than Bruce's hair from his head. Nothing. Wow. Right. When detectives spoke to Cherie... Bruce's 20-year-younger wife that he had just married only a few months before his death. She said that she believed the murder to be her ex-boyfriend named Bruce Hutchinson. When the um, detectives got Bruce Hutchinson and was interrogating him, they got him to do a polygraph where the guy melted down and basically um, like passed out. Because he was so freaked out over the polygraph. Which he failed the polygraph. Okay. <laughs> failed the polygraph. Had an anxiety attack. Passed out. But the police didn't find any forensic evidence leaking him at all to the murder. Well, the house so, was wiped clean. No. Right. So for months, they had nothing. And then a few months later, a man named Jerry Cassidy, who was a former homicide investigator committed suicide in his Kansas City, Missouri home. They ended up finding a videotape in the trash can that said for Jerry's eyes only. And when they looked at it, it was a woman, Sheree Miller, dancing seductively. <laughs> and, you know, things. Wow. Yeah. Okay, did you did you say what year this is? I don't remember. 99. Okay, so you know before so it was a VHS before uh, smartphones where you could just text people things. Correct. This was the beginning of the age of really internet stuff, computers, AOL, instant messenger. Huh. Things were still on VHS, <laughs> so that's what they ended up finding was a VHS tape in the trash can. Old school. Okay. Please continue. It was a very interesting episode. <laughs> um, they say it looked none too sexy, really, but it was her trying to be seductive, basically. <laughs> oh, burn. <laughs> she, it's interesting when you're reading different things on what happened on it and watching the episode. They basically believe that she was dumb, <laughs> which... <laughs> Is entertaining to me because, yeah, she's dumb, but she was kind of like 
too smart, but not yeah. enough. It's like that weird where it's like you're really smart, but you're really dumb. Like if you had been a little bit smarter in certain areas, this could have like. It's really weird. They ended up investigating her because they found that tape. And she had basically said, well, I don't think it's wrong to send things online, like sexual messages online and things with a stranger when you're married. Because, I mean, everybody does it. <laughs> no, ma'am. Everyone does not. Not everybody does it. No. <laughs> no. Um, at first, she tried saying when they had when they had found her and they'd gotten the tapes and they had watched it. She had said she doesn't know this person. And they had questioned her. You didn't send him nude photos. Nope. That I did not do that. And in the episode, they're playing her actual interrogation. And I get what, what they mean when she say when they say they don't think she's very smart. She sounds kind of dumb. <laughs> like, it's, I know it's so tasteless, but it's like, you kind of sound dumb. She's like, no, that's not me. And they're like, so these tape, these video, like these stills of you. Yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Eventually they got it to where she was like, okay, yeah, I did, but it's no big deal. I had a relationship online with him, never had it in person, which is not true. What she had said was that she had never met him in person and that they had a strictly online relationship. She considered it no big deal. Like I had said, for a married person to exchange the sexually suggestive material in a chat room because everybody does it. They ended up confiscating both her computer and Jerry Cassidy's computers. And what made me giggle is that they had said they gave it to someone in a new role, which was like online investigations or something like that <laughs> it was a new a new part of the detective force and i was like wow <laughs> really going back in time new. it's it was that was what got me and they ended up having to dig up america online aol oh my gosh and their instant messages where they had discovered that the two had, fa in fact, met in person and had sex. Wow. They had a relationship. All in all, Cherie had made Cassidy believe that her husband, Bruce Miller, needed to be disposed of. <laughs> she had made up an entire story about how he was involved in organized crime and abused her. Junkyard man in organized crime. Well, you never know. Maybe he crushed some cars a and hid evidence. An older... White, docile-looking, <laughs> junkyard man. Yeah. In Flint, Michigan. Organized crime. Right. Got it. She ended up telling Cassidy that she was pregnant with twins, his twins, and she had sent him of a sonogram, which ended up being five years old from when she actually had one of her children. Oh, so she was trying to play that she was pregnant and her husband's beating him and he needs to be disposed of. What had happened was later on she had told him, when he beat me, I miscarried your children. Huh. And so that's what she had done. She had said he had uh, beat her so badly that she'd mi miscarried Cassidy's twins. She even used makeup to paint bruises on her stomach and sent them to Cassidy as photographs. Hmm. 
as evidence of his abuse. What they say is that she didn't sound really intelligent in the clips, but she ended up ma- uh, managing to fool him when he was a veteran homicide detective. Wow. So, I mean, she couldn't have been that dumb. Probably just, like, yeah. pretending. Or he was just really love-struck. Which... Yeah, she had his sympathies, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And maybe this was a time where you just believed whatever people told you. Because we were naive at one point. Right. Investigators ended up finding messages and reading them where the two had been discussing a murder plot where Cherie would distract Bruce by calling him. And while she was on the phone with him, Cassidy would shoot him. And Cherie instructed him to make it look like a robbery. He ended up having around $2,000 of cash. And that's something that they had noted in the beginning is that the money was missing. So they thought it was a robbery, but... The entire scene was clean. So how is this happening? Like, this doesn't make sense. Nothing's adding up. So he had taken a 2000 in cash to stage a robbery. But he had overthunk it and really cleaned the place and made sure that yeah. nothing was left behind. Huh. That was until he wrote his own suicide note after he realized that he killed an innocent man. Oh, wow. Which is why they ended up finding him dead in his home. She had betrayed him, basically. And once she had her husband out of the way, she stopped communicating with him and latched on to a new boyfriend. When he had discovered that the sonogram images were old, he was upset. And in his note, he had wrote to his parents. He had said, I was so blind and so stupid. And so much in love. Little did I know, she never meant any of it. She just wanted all her money and no more husband. Cherie was involved and helped set it up. I have all the proof. She will get what's coming. Wow. And he was right. Because after two days, the jury found her guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and second degree murder in in Bruce Miller's death. She ended up getting life in prison plus 54 to 81 years. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. In the article that I found, which was ap- after the episode, because, you know, you kind of wonder what happens after. Yeah. She had tried to get a release. Well, she ended up like kind of finagling a release from jail while pending a new trial in 2009. Her attorneys had threw in doubt into doubt the um, missability of Cassidy's suicide note. So they tried to say, oh, his suicide note, it was just him trying to bring her under with his death. But nonetheless, the district court reinstated Miller's convictions in 2012, and back she went to the Michigan Department of Corrections. So she had gotten out, thinking, I'm good, and they were like, eh, made you look. Get back in there, you idiot. Hope you enjoyed your temporary freedom. Now go back to prison. Well, and then in a uh, surprise move in 2016, she finally admitted her guilt. Wow. She must have really wanted to try and get some kind of parole. Yeah. It was, the episode was only about 22 minutes long. I had my mom watch it with me today. And there were, every time there was like a new twist, we'd just look at each other and go. (gasps) (laughs) But then we'd also giggle over AOL and the instant messages. And I'm like. She tried saying that the instant messages were fabricated, but AOL was like, eh, eh, eh. 
and they were served with papers to release everything, and they released everything. Wow. Uh, to the courts. So. Good old AOL. I wonder what happened to them. <laughs> <laughs> it was just interesting here, like, seeing, like, the whole instant message chat box. Yeah. It, like, PTSD. It brought me back. <laughs> like the early 2000s i was like ah yeah the yeah, away it, messages because it was aol was the only one in the beginning like aol the instant messenger everybody used it until yahoo messenger became a thing and then i remember that's what we all used mm-hmm. and then said goodbye to our aol names with the baby angel doll girl with x's and whatever else we had in our names <laughs> Like X, X, right. X, and then your name, and then some X's at the end. And our away messages always being like a song. Yeah. <laughs> song lyrics. Oh, man. Yeah. It was definitely interesting. You know, 1999, it was a shoot back to the past. Yeah. But it was basically caught by AOL Instant Messenger. That's yeah, which who would have thought, you know, AOL Instant Messenger, but hey. Yeah. All right. Well, today I'm going to talk to you about the death of Florence Unger. Um, and this is also a Forensic Files episode. I don't know what number it was, but it's called Drowning Sorrows. So I, I felt a little bit like I was going to be slightly cheating, but you did too. So that works. <laughs> And I recommend this episode because there are a lot of uh, unexpected twists. And there's one uh, person in particular that I'm going to mention later that was key to solving this, essentially. So every year, Mark Unger and his wife, Florence, and their two sons would spend their family vacation at a cabin resort in Watervale on Lower Herring Lake in Blaine Township. Florence was a bank loan officer, and Mark was a mortgage broker and radio personality who had a sports radio show. The vacation started out like usual, but on October 24th, 2003, Mark spent time with their two sons while Florence was outside to get some fresh air. Mark put the boys to bed and noticed Florence wasn't outside. He assumed she went next door to their friend's cabin since the lights were on. Mark watched some TV and went to bed, but when he woke up just after dawn, Florence still wasn't home. He called the resort owners at around 7.30 a.m. to ask if they'd seen her, but they had not. The resort owners started looking for her and found her body in the lake and called 911. On the 911 call, the caller said she believed it to be suicide or drowning. When the police arrived to the scene, they found her body in the water next to a boat launch. About 12 feet above that was a deck that overlooked the lake outside the Unger's cabin. When Benzie County Sheriff's Office Deputy Troy Packard looked up, he noticed the railing was broken and looked as if Florence could have been leaning against or sitting on the railing when it broke and she lost her balance and fell over the edge. Police at first thought Florence's death was due to the deck railing not being up to code. In a computer simulation done by a forensic firm, A computer simulation was done by a forensic firm, and from that it was determined that Florence could have fallen, hit her head, and then rolled into the lake and drowned. Seemed weird to me. So, 
The medical examiner did an autopsy and found no drugs or alcohol in her system, but did find evidence of severe head trauma and noticed that the cause of death was drowning. This fit with a computer simulation uh, that showed different ways Florence could have fallen, and the forensic firm concluded that Florence's death was accidental. However, the medical examiner, Dr. Dragovic, or Dragovich, I'm not sure which, uh, is the real MVP and disagreed with that conclusion. And that's because when he looked at the blood stain on the boat launch, he noticed that the blood stain was too large for someone to have just hit their head and then rolled off into the water because it was almost a foot in diameter. To find out how long Florence would have had to lay there, Dr. Dragovich examined slides of her brain tissue and found that the damaged part of her brain had started to heal itself before she drowned. So she would have had to be alive for that to happen. And Dr. Dragovich noted that it would have been at least 90 minutes to two hours before she drowned. Getting more suspicious. So the other inconsistency found was that part of the railing that was broken and where the bloodstain was did not line up. Analysts determined that the railing breaking on its own was unlikely as well because they tested another part of the deck. They determined that the amount of force needed to break the railing didn't match up with Florence's weight. So this uh, 110-pound woman supposedly like leaned up against and broke this railing, but it took over 200 pounds of force exerted on it and it still didn't break when the Michigan State Police tested it. So at that point, the police start looking more at Mark Unger. He denied having any involvement and at first claimed she'd been a little depressed, but later changed her story and said she wouldn't have committed suicide. So while Mark is saying that it was a horrible accident, Florence's family believed Mark had murdered her. To some, it looked like they were happily married, but those close to them noticed that there were issues Mark had an alcohol and drug problem, as well as a gambling addiction that cost him his job. <laughs> Talk about a real winner. Drugs, alcohol, gambling. It's like, uh, what do they call that? The triple threat? <laughs> the, the triple threat of the triangle. bad addictions. Yeah, the triangle of addictions or whatever. It's Yeah, it's not good. But he had periods of up to six months. Uh, six months at a time in rehab for his addictions. It was also found that Florence had filed for divorce two months before her death and was in another relationship with someone who happened to be a close friend of Mark's. Investigators found that Florence had seen him a few days before her death and Mark may have known about it. To make it even more condemning for Mark, it was found that Florence had two life insurance policies with a combined value of $750,000 enlisted Mark as the sole beneficiary and about five days before her death, Mark lost about $7,000 gambling. So the dude needed money and conveniently the woman he was still married to had 750k in life insurance. Florence's friends said she hadn't wanted to go on the trip and she was afraid to go and it keeps getting more suspicious when the resort owner told investigators that when he told Mark he found Florence's body, Mark immediately went to the spot without being told where she was. 
And from where Mark was standing, he wouldn't have been able to see where Florence's body was. While investigators had a lot of circumstantial evidence, they didn't have absolute proof of his involvement to nail a conviction. That was until they found a white spot on his shoe. Do you care to guess what that was? Oh, jeez. Um, nail polish? Close in substances, the state police lab found paint flakes that matched the deck railing. <laughs> the deck railing that just happened to be broken above where her body was found. <laughs> and the paint, right. the paint on his shoe was chemically identical to the paint on the deck railing. Between the results that Florence couldn't have broken the deck railing, the time she would have had to lie there before going into the water, and the paint found on Mark's shoe, the case was pretty solid. The medical examiner, Dr. Dragovich, gave advice and said, consider every death scene as a homicide scene. Because if he hadn't disagreed with the forensic firm and had just taken it as an accident without doing more, Mark Unger would have gotten away with the murder of Florence Unger. Isn't that crazy to think about? Like, if he hadn't pursued it and he just decided, okay, it looks like an accident. I'm not going to look into this more. He would have gotten away with it. They wouldn't have looked into it further, probably. Because the police are going to take the medical examiner's word. If you say this is an accident, they're not going to investigate it more. Right. So... Yay for him. He deserves an award. <laughs> it's like we have a couple of a couple of people in ours. Both dummies. Yeah. Seven months after Florence's death, Mark Unger was charged with first degree murder. The district court excluded Dr. Dragovich's opinion that the murder was premeditated and was bound over on the charge of second degree murder. However, the circuit court disagreed and ruled that Dr. Dragovich's opinion was admissible and allowed prosecution to reinstate the charge of first-degree premeditated murder. Like, I don't know what the heck was going on uh, with the district court, but really? Right. On July 18th, 2006, almost three years after Florence's death, a jury sentenced Mark Stephen Unger of homicide, murder, first-degree premeditated, and was sentenced to life in prison. Unger is currently serving his sentence in the Upper Peninsula at the Chippewa Correctional Facility as a level two inmate. (laughs) If he still has his gambling addiction, that's probably not working too well for him in there. But more than anything, I just feel bad for his two boys that lost their mother, who was obviously the more stable parent. But am thankful they were able to be raised by Florence's parents. In the episode, Florence's father said... His advice is that for any woman going through a divorce should avoid contact with the ex unless absolutely necessary. Even if there is no history of mental or physical abuse, it is better to err on the side of caution because even casual contact could result in a dangerous or life-threatening event. So that information is from the Forensic Files episode. Uh, There's a case law website because he did appeal but lost that one. Thankfully. Of course he did. They always do. And then the MDOC offender tracking system. Sorry. I have, um, my stomach's been making noises. (laughs) It's been like yelling at me because it wants to eat. 
So every once in a while, I eat my hair out. <laughs> my stomach, like, trying to Is talk. Is that like a little shop of horrors where it's like, feed me? Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> oh, so do you have uh, something good for this week? Um, trying to think. I mean, I got a lot done today for, like, household chores. So that's good for me. I'm kind of like, I'm starting to do better, like, depression-wise. Yesterday, I actually woke up in a really good mood, which hasn't happened to me in years. Oh, that's good. So, I like, I even, like, thought to myself as I'm, like, jamming in the car, I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, I actually stopped myself for a second. I was like, wait, are you actually feeling a happy emotion, like, naturally, not forcing it? This is a weird feeling. And then today I just got so much done. And I'm like, maybe it's because I started going more keto lately or not, not fully keto, but I've been um, dieting lately. And I don't know, like maybe my body's doing better. And so like <laughs> it's throwing the chemical imbalance. Different. It was just weird. Because I'm used to the depression. I'm used to the, like, <laughs> like just fake happiness. It's where it was, like, a weird feeling of, like, not needing a nap today. Nice. The fact that I didn't feel, oh, my God, if I don't sleep, I'm going to fall over. I did not feel that today. And I have felt that way f every day for the longest time. It's just, like, no matter, I could sleep 12 hours in a row and I will need a nap. Huh. But now, I was like, what is going on? I'm okay with it. It's just weird. It's just weird. <laughs> feeling, feeling normal is weird. Wow. <laughs> wow. Is this, I like actually thought, is this what like non-depressive people feel every day? <laughs> this is weird. Like, why am I productive? Why am I not like moping everywhere? Like, why am I happy? This is strange. <laughs> Good. Foreign a little. <laughs> yeah, I washed my bed sheets today. I did some laundry. I washed Liam's sheets. Yeah. I got that deep Good fried deal. pickle dip. <laughs> Which is just like a regular chip dip, but there's just a lot of dill in it. It's still good. Like a lot of a, dill. A lot of dill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was still delicious, though, so. it's all that matters. Yeah. I mean, you could get around it, like I told you, by just eating dill pickle flavored chips. But. <laughs> yeah, no, whatever. Oh. I was just going to say, other than that, there's been nothing exciting going on. I didn't think. Yeah, there's not much. We're, we're kind of at a. Just every day. We're just coasting, I should say. Yeah. You you go to work, you you go to bed. Yeah. It's basically my everyday. Yeah. <laughs> We're in a boring time. <laughs> and somehow boring actually has made me happier. It's so weird. <laughs> well, be safe, everybody, and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod 
and can be found at incomptech.filmmusic.io.